Well, good morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor at Element Church and uh, just so thankful that you are joining us for this online worship experience, whether you're watching live on Facebook or on our website, or maybe you're watching this video later. Uh, we're just so glad that you chose to join with us uh, as we are entering into the final week of a series that we've been in for uh, several weeks now called The Grand Narrative. Now, before I jump into the topic uh, for today, there's just a few things that I'd love to say um, about how we got here over the last few weeks and all that God has been doing uh, in our community and in our church. Uh, you know, when we got the call a couple weeks ago that the school that we normally meet in, the Murphy Creek P-8, uh, which is a part of the Aurora Public School System here in Colorado, when we got word that they were closing, uh, we were sort of in scramble mode. We, we had an emergency meeting of staff and leaders and uh, trying to figure out what we were going to do. Uh, how could we still worship together? Uh, we discussed the when, the where, the what, uh, all of it, including how to invite you to be a part of it. Um, and we're trying to figure out what the next best steps were. And uh, I just want to take a moment and just say how proud I am of our staff and our leadership here at Element Church. Um, they have worked so hard over the last couple of weeks. You would maybe think that because we haven't been able to meet in the school, and so we haven't had to do the usual setup and the teardown and go through all that process that life would be a little easier, uh, but that is couldn't be far farther from the truth. Uh, our, our team has put in more time and energy and hours and work uh, over the last couple of weeks than probably any other season in the history of our church. And I'm just really proud of our team. Um, but one of the things that we talked a lot about when we first met and we're trying to decide what to do, uh, a word that kept coming up was consistency. In the midst of everything changing, uh, in, in the face of so much uncertainty, we wanted to be uh, just a source of consistency for every one of us. And uh, so what we decided was that we were going to stick with the schedule and the plans we already had in place. You know, we as a staff and, and me as the primary teacher and preacher here uh, plan out months in advance of what we're going to be covering, what we're going to be doing. Uh, and we genuinely believe that God is at work in that, that season of praying and thinking and planning. And so we just felt like even though all of this was a surprise to many of us, uh, it wasn't a surprise to God. And so if God was at work months ago as we were planning, then we trusted that he knew what he was doing. And I believe that more now than ever. Because that first week that we were doing our online worship gathering, we already had scheduled Alyssa Vogelweed, who is our Connections Director, she was already scheduled to teach. Uh, Alyssa, as our Connections Director, her focus is on connecting people together. Whether that's connecting someone to a leader in our church, connecting people to uh, one of our teams to serve, or get, getting people connected in community. And so how fitting in a time when most of us are trying to figure out how to connect, that our leader of connections uh, has the opportunity to teach. And her message that Sunday was about keeping Jesus at the center in the midst of chaos and tragedy, uh, which could not be any more fitting than, uh, than what we were going through at the time. And then last week, uh, Cameron brought a message about what the church is. Uh, in a season when most of the things that we associate with church, like a building, a worship service that we attend, something that we go to, when, when all of those things have been stripped away from us, uh, Cameron brings this message about what the church is, what the church isn't, and how that is relevant for our lives, which was always relevant, but I think we were even that much more aware and sensitive to the relevancy as he brought his message. 
Uh, and just so fitting that that's exactly what God had been at work planning months ago. And so today we're gonna wrap up our series, The Grand Narrative. And what we're gonna do is in this series, what we have been doing is we've been talking about the big story. So when we say grand narrative, we mean the biggest, the big story of all stories. The, the story that encompasses all stories. Uh, the story of existence and humanity and creation. And we've talked about uh, how, how the Bible portrays that story and how you and I fit into that story. And so um, Cameron last week talked about the church, which is a part of the story that we're living in now. Um, and what we're going to do to wrap up the series today is we're going to talk about how that story ends. And to get to that part of the story, we go to the end of the Bible, to the last book of the Bible, the book called Revelation. And for a lot of people, the idea of going there, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with that particular book, it, it can be really intimidating uh, because there's so much vivid imagery and theological ideas presented in such a unique way that for a lot of us, it can be really intimidating uh, and hard to understand. And so um, as we get into that part of the story, we talk about how the story ends. Uh, I want to return to an illustration that we've used a lot in this series. Uh, in this series, we've used the illustration of a puzzle a lot. Uh, you know, in many ways, this grand narrative or this great story is like a puzzle in that there are so many little stories or little pieces that all fit together. Your story is a piece of that puzzle. My story is a piece of that puzzle. When we read the Bible and we encounter all these other stories, they're all pieces of this great big story that God has been telling since the beginning of time. And most of the time when we think of puzzles, we think of something like this, like a jigsaw puzzle. But there's actually a lot of other kinds of puzzles. Uh, for example, uh, this is a kind of puzzle that's really popular in my house. My, my oldest, uh, my 12-year-old son, he loves these things. He's got like two dozen of them in different shapes and uh, sizes and complexity. And um, while for many of us, we look at this as really intimidating, uh, it, it is a puzzle in so many, so many ways, but really it's almost like a math problem. Um, as a matter of fact, when you want to do something on a Rubik's Cube like this, um, they actually have formulas, what they call algorithms, is that how you do it. So if you want to move one cube around to the other side, there's a formula for that. There's an algorithm. And so what you do is you learn a handful of algorithms and then you can solve this. Um, and so it's just a little extra information uh, is, is all that you need. Uh, to put this thing together. Uh, but then there are other kinds of puzzles. Like, uh, for example, here's a box full of little puzzles that my kids bought me, I think, for Father's Day one year. Um, and these puzzles, in many ways, uh, while you can solve them, like this one, it, it's kind of like two nails wrapped up in a loop and they're tied together. Um, while they can be solved, uh, they're not intuitive. As a matter of fact, you have to have kind of like the secret in knowing how to do it. This actually comes with instructions to show you the secret on each of the little puzzles and, and how they go together, uh, how you pull them apart and then you, you put them back together. And so without the special knowledge or the secret, there's it's almost impossible to solve. You can't figure it out just intuitively by looking at it. And in many ways, when we talk about the book of Revelation uh, in the Bible, most of us kind of think of it like this. Like it's some form of trickery that there's like this special secret code that you have to have to unlock its hidden meaning uh, to figure it all out. And um, But that's actually not what the book of Revelation is about at all. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the book of Revelation, the word revelation comes from a Greek word. 
uh, apocalypsis is that Greek word, and it literally means just to reveal or or to make known or to unveil something. Um, and, and that's the whole point of the book of Revelation is not to hide and conceal, but to reveal um, how this story ends and to reveal God's heart for his people. And so it's not designed to to trick us, maybe less like that puzzle and maybe a little more like this is, is really if you just have a little bit of extra information, it can help you put it all together. And, and probably the most helpful piece of information that comes with, um, with the book of Revelation is understanding what kind of genre of literature, what kind of literature it is. We've talked a lot about that in this series. When we talked about the Old Testament, we actually laid out all the books of the Old Testament together and showed that they are not in chronological order. So if you've ever tried to read the Bible from cover to cover and you feel like you're skipping around in a story a lot, it's because you are, because the Bible isn't organized in chronological order. It's organized like a library uh, by different literary or genres or literary types. And so so just like you walk into a library and you have nonfiction and fiction and reference sections, that's how the Bible is organized. Now, there are parts of the Bible that are chronological. I mean, the very first book deals with the beginning of beginnings. The very last book deals with the end and how the story concludes. But for the most part, uh, it, it's, it's not organized that way. And so knowing what kind of literature you're reading really helps. For example, uh, maybe a modern way of thinking about it is, if you were to read a, a biography of a Holocaust survivor and you were going to read a dystopian novel, they actually might have a lot of similarities, but you would not read and understand the books in the same way. And so understanding what kind of book or literature Revelation is really helps us to understand it better. Um, and like you can imagine where it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation, um, we label revelation as far as what kind of literature it is, as an apocalypse or apocalyptic literature. Now, don't let your modern understanding of that term uh, cloud what the original design of this book was. Uh, apocalyptic literature is actually not that uncommon. It's pretty uncommon for us. Uh, Revelation is, is the only whole book that would fit that category. There are a few parts of the Old Testament, like the second half of the book of Daniel, that would uh, fit into that category. But for a large part, apocalypse is is pretty foreign to us, but it was not foreign to its original audience in the late first and early uh, second century. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of ancient examples of uh, apocalypses. They were fairly common literature. Uh, you you may not be aware of this, but. Uh, we have all different kinds. We have uh, Persian and Greek and Latin. We have Jewish and Christian apocalypses. Um, there are a lot of different Jewish apocalypses. Some of them you may even heard of before because um, they make it occasionally into pop culture or maybe you've got some experience reading these kinds of things like Fourth Ezra or Second Baruch or First Enoch would be examples of, of ancient Jewish apocalyptic uh, literature. But believe it or not, we have 24 different Christian apocalypses, um, 14 of those that have survived to modern times in, in complete, uh, complete works. Um, and so there are things like the apocalypse of Peter, the apocalypse of James, the apocalypse of Paul. These are all ancient documents. Now, don't, don't uh, confuse the name uh, there. They were not written by those people. They were written much later than, uh, than those individuals were alive. But um, we actually have a lot of examples of Christian apocalypse uh, literature. It's just that only one of them made it into our Bible. So it's a little unfamiliar with uh, for us. Um, but there are some common traits uh, that 
a lot of uh, apocalypses have. And, um, and just going through and understanding what kind of uh, literature it is, what kind of traits they have. Um, apocalypse uh, generally is full of visions. And if you've ever read Revelation, you know that that certainly fits that category. Um, apocalypses are full of symbolism. Oftentimes you have outlandish creatures. There's a lot of cosmology, a lot of numerology. Uh, numbers are, are really important in uh, apocalyptic literature. As a matter of fact, the author John, who's the author of Revelation, uses the number 754 times. It's a really important number for him because it was a really important number for his culture in the time that he wrote it. Um, Oftentimes, apocalypses uh, are very deterministic, meaning that uh, they, they present the, the events as though they're, they're already going to happen no matter what, that, that God has already put these things in action. Generally, apocalypses are very dualistic, meaning you see a lot of good versus evil. Um, a lot of times it's God versus Satan. Um, oftentimes, it's presented in a, a very evil present age with a much better age to come. Um, oftentimes, uh, apocalypses can be pretty pessimistic, meaning they look at the world as things are really bad and that the, the events and history of the world has run its course and it's time for things to end. And then ultimately, a lot of times apocalypses are written um, from the context of persecution and oppression and despair. And it, it takes a look at how things have gone terribly wrong and looking around at uh, trying to find some solution. You know, we've been through this series in the grand narrative, looking at this big picture, and, and we've talked a lot about God's heart and his plan for creation and humanity. We started in week one talking about creation and God's heart and design for us. We moved to week two and talking about what went wrong with everything. Week three, we started talking about how from the very beginning when things went wrong, God still had a plan. In week four, we talked about how ultimately humans can't solve the problem that we perpetually create. What's gonna to have to happen is God is gonna to have to step in. We can't solve the problem if we're the ones who keep creating the problem. And so as we've seen this story unfold, there's been this long awaiting uh, for God to step in and to do something. You know, several weeks ago, as a part of this series, we did this little activity together where I asked everyone to close their eyes and to imagine a perfect world. Not just like a perfect day. I mean, we can all imagine what that might be like. And not a perfect world just for you, but what would a perfect world for everyone look like? And we did that to illustrate actually how hard it can be to, to even wrap our minds around what a perfect world, if all things were as they could and should be, to, just how difficult it is to wrap our minds around that idea. Uh, there's this quote from a guy named Gregory Kokel who wrote a book called The Story of Reality that kind of captures this idea really well. I want to read it for you. He says, part of the difficulty is, is this. It is much easier for people to believe in heaven than for them to believe in hell for obvious reasons, I think. But it is harder for them to envision heaven than to envision hell. Vice is always much less difficult to portray than virtue. So our sense of hell has a vividness that our sense of heaven cannot match. The hellish images are easy to grab, grasp because we are well acquainted with suffering. Heaven, though, lies largely beyond our mental reach. But even though things look dark, um, even though sometimes it's so much easier for us to understand and imagine suffering, than it is to imagine beauty and perfection and heaven, there, there is this ray of hope, 
right? There's this thing in all of us, this, this fleeting sense that we know things could be better, that there are occasional windows uh, into, into like another realm where we know that, that what we experience is not all that there could be. And, and we see it in a couple different ways. Like maybe, maybe you experience it when you, uh, you see one of those Facebook videos of like a military homecoming when a soldier surprises his family. Um, or, or maybe it's when you watch one of those YouTube videos where a step kid surprises their step parent with asking them to, to adopt them. Um, or maybe for you, it's like when you watch Lifetime movies or it's, it's the end of Field of Dreams when Kevin Costner plays catch with his dad or, um, or, or when your wife is pregnant and she watches literally any commercial, right? You get those fleeting senses of, of like, oh my gosh, there's so much more like that longing for things to be as they could be or as they should be like a recognition that, that there's something more out there. And the book of Revelation really speaks to that idea, that it's, that it's packed full of this vivid imagery that speaks to a ray of hope in the midst of darkness, um, because it was written to a group of Christians at the end of the first, beginning of the second century, who were in a rough place, who were dealing with suffering and persecution, who were looking around and going, okay, I know a part of the story. I know that God designed us for so much more, but that's not what we're experiencing, and we we're waiting uh, for God to finish what he has started. And so it's this idea that there's this ray of hope in darkness. And that's what the book of Revelation speaks to us even to today. The, the book of Revelation was never meant to be read in one hand with a newspaper in the other hand. That's not how it was meant to uh, to be read, aside from the fact that it was written to an audience long ago. And so if you ever encounter an interpretation or understanding of Revelation, whether it's something that, that you've come up with or that you've come across, if it, it, that doesn't make any sense to a first century audience, then then it's probably off base because it, it wasn't written to help us predict current events. It was written to give us a ray of hope uh, in the midst of difficult times and suffering which is why I think as we come to the end of this series and the end of the story, it's so appropriate for the times that you and I are in today. And, and I want to read just a portion uh, of Revelation for us. And we're going to jump into chapter 21. So this is towards the end of the book. As things come to a conclusion, I'm going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 7. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." Now, even in the midst of this theological imagery that's given here, um, there are some really important things that I want us to, to look at that I think speak volumes to us today. Um, what we see is 
is we see the, the fulfillment of all of these promises that were made earlier in the story that we got just a glimpse at earlier. Like if you remember the promises that God gave to Abraham, that God was going to solve the problem we had created. He was going to start a work and it was going to begin with a guy named Abraham. And as a part of that promise, he said, I'm going to give you a great big family. I'm going to give you a land to call home and I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. And what we see is as we get to the end of the story, we see those promises start to be fulfilled as that ray of hope for us. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, um, what we learn is that Abraham's family is not just about a bloodline, it's it's a spiritual family. That it's not about what blood runs through our veins, whether or not we belong to his family and that promise, but rather it's it's because of the blood of Jesus that opens the door for all of us. Here's what Galatians 3 says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's anyone who didn't come from Abraham's line, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And we see that these promises start to come true that God has begun to create this new family, not, not through bloodlines, but through faith. And then what we see in the book of Revelation is that the land that God had promised, essentially a place to call home, was no longer so, so much bound by geopolitical boundaries, but that this new home uh, was universal, this new heaven and new earth, as uh, Revelation declares. And then what we see in Revelation chapter 7 is that this blessing that God promised to give to Abraham becomes global. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is this beautiful picture that God has broken down all the walls and barriers that separate us as uh, humans, the things that we put up to create division, that God has torn them down to, to bring us back to what he ultimately created us for. We said in week one that we were created from communion for communion, that God designed you and I to live in harmony and in communion with our creator and with one another. And what we see is that the story comes to a conclusion is that God is going to bring about the fulfillment of that promise that once again, we're going to get to experience what we were ultimately created and designed to experience. And then what's really cool is that in Revelation is a part of this imagery. God paints this picture of a new Eden, of, of a new garden of Eden. When we were talking about the Garden of Eden at the beginning of this story, of this grand narrative, we talked about how Eden was, was a temple and a template. It was a temple because that was the place where people met with their creator. And it was a template because later on, uh, as people would go on to build a temple in order to worship God, they would model their temple after the Garden of Eden. And then all of a sudden in Revelation, we get this language that returns that tells us that God is recreating recreating Eden so that we can once again be where God originally designed us to be. And so in Revelation 21, we see uh, this great river and the tree of life return. In Revelation, uh, that was in Revelation 22. In Revelation 21, we see a lot of this other imagery about precious metals and stones that we talked about in previous weeks uh, that were used to illustrate um, connecting with God. We see those things reappear once again. 
And here's what, how I want to close. Revelation chapter 21, we just read this a minute ago. We're going to jump back into verse 3 again. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Here's the big picture that, uh, that I want you to take away from this today as we close out um, our time together and as we close out this series, is that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of suffering, God is in control and God has a plan. That's ultimately the message the, the book of Revelation gave to its original first century audience. That when things don't seem all as they could or should be, when there is suffering and uncertainty, that God has not forgotten about the promises that he has made. That you and I were created for something, created for something special. That we were created for that connection and fellowship and communion with our creator and with one another. And that God is working towards that end. And there's this beautiful picture right there in verse 4 that we just read. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then in verse 5, he says, And I'm making all things new. There's going to come a time when our Creator is going to create again. He is going to recreate so that we can enjoy all that we were designed to enjoy so that we can be all that God designed and created us to be. And he has extended that invitation to all who want to make Jesus the center of their story. As we've talked about throughout this entire series, this great grand story, and as, as Alyssa pointed out in her message, that Jesus is not just a part of the story, he's the author and he's the hero. That he's the creator of the story and its main character. And that there's been an invitation to make him the center of our stories. Because ultimate hope, uh, genuine satisfaction, complete peace, it's not something that we create. Just as we learned in this story that humans can't fix a problem that we perpetuate and create. That God has to step in and he has stepped in and given the invitation to all of us. I want to read something from this same book, Revelation chapter 3, from the voice of Jesus, and it says this, Here I am, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Jesus extends this invitation that anyone who will open the door and let him come into their lives, he gives his invitation to sit down and eat, and it's that symbol of acceptance and friendship and fellowship. And it's the invitation that Jesus gives to you and I. That ultimately the problems that we face in life aren't going to be solved with our own creativity or ingenuity, but that ultimately the problems that we endure that must be solved are going to be solved by God and God alone. And Jesus has extended that invitation. And so in the midst of the craziness and uncertainty of all of our lives right now, when we're all trying to figure out what, what a new normal is going to look like and trying to figure out uh, how we're going to move forward, the invitation extends to you and I to open our hearts, to allow Jesus to come in, to do a new work in us, to make us new, 
to bring us to that place that we were ultimately created to be, to living in harmony with our Creator. And that's the invitation that God gives to you and I this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the time that we have together this morning. And in the midst of chaos and uncertainty, I thank you for the message uh, that this story brings that despite the chaos and uncertainty, that you are in control and that you have a plan. And God, we recognize there's so many unanswered questions about the when and the how and the where, but we place our trust in you. Then in the midst of it all, uh, you have given that invitation to come in and to fellowship with us. And so God, my prayer this morning is that all of us, everyone listening, no matter where they're at, would open our lives to you, that we would make you the center of our story, that we would open up to all that you want to do in our hearts and our lives this morning. Lord, thank you that you bring that security and that comfort and the peace to our hearts when everything around us fades away, when everything else doesn't fulfill. And our heart and our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would give us that hope. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together. Praise in your name.